Tickets are available now at MGMNationalHarbor.com. Don't miss this generation's most influential jazz sensation, Gregory Porter, live. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. I'm Kamaya. I'm Amira. I'm Kaya. I'm Kamaya. And you're listening to WPFW Washington. Another man done gone. Another man done gone. From the county farm. Another man done gone. Huh? I don't know. What? I'm just going to walk the street. Shut your mouth. Oh, no. The jury of your peers having found you guilty. Ten years. Come on, come on. I was in jail too, man. It's cold blooded in the jail. You go down there looking for justice. That's what you find. Just us. Welcome to another edition of Crossroads Today. Now here's your host, Roach Brown. Y'all know I'll be right here. This is the first Tuesday of the month where we come to you live from the world-famous Ben's Chili Bowl. And let me say that uh, they had a special birthday celebration last month for Miss Ali. And man, oh man, oh, Chevish. This lady is quite a young lady. I mean, uh, we were invited to the Capital One Arena for her birthday celebration when the Wizards played uh, the Pistons. And we didn't know that they had a thing in it called the Hennessy Loft. At the end of one of the courts behind the basket, there's a little, uh, well, I don't know how you describe it. There's some booths where you can order food. And we sit there and watch the basketball game and had the food delivered to us while watching the game. That was off the chain. Uh, then somebody called. I got up went to the bathroom. Somebody called from the stands and bleachers and hollered, hey, Roach, get out of that high cotton seat. You don't belong down there. And we looked up and waved and said, boy, you belong wherever you are. And thank you for, for that evening we had with Miss Virginia Ali and her uh, birthday celebration at the uh, Capital One Arena. Man, that was quite an event. So I want to say thank her, thank her to her and the Ali family for allowing us. We've been coming here for, I think, three years we've been doing this show live from the world-famous Ben's Chili Bowl. And Miss Ali has been one of our biggest supporters and, and backers. And I've been knowing Ms. Ali over 60 years. And I used to come here before it was Ben's Chili Bowl. So we go back over 60 years. Of course, I ain't but 35 plus tax. You know, you got to put a state and federal on there. You know? uh, we're going to start with our second guest who's just called us and let us know he's running 15 to 20 minutes late. His name is Dr. William Lawson. He's a black psychiatrist. And we're going to talk about the mental health, what's going on in, in, in society, but also the crisis inside of prison, mental health is, again, another crisis. Why is it everything we talk about is a crisis, it's urgent, it's imminent, it's chronic? Uh, anything that pertains to us is that kind of problem. So this gentleman, Dr. Lawson, uh, we're joining us to talk about his book. He got a new book, William Lawson's, and his book is uh, Black Healing and Black Health. Uh, he called and said he's in traffic. We're waiting for him to get in until he get here. We're just hold down the fort uh, with Jerry and my beautiful wife, Mertine. Come over here, Michael Mertine, and let and let you say a few words, because hopefully Nikichi Taifa, our co-host, who's in Brazil on a trip, 
I don't know what she's doing there. I never asked. It's not my business. I just know that Nikichi is all over the place. She's doing anything and everything she can to make a difference in criminal justice and improving the life of those less fortunate. So Nikichi, have a ball down there, lady, and we'll see you when you get back. And Mertine, what do you have to say uh, on this cold February day? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I totally agree with what Melissa and Ron Hampton are talking about. Change has to be authentic, and the change that's happening right now is just lock up, lock up more little black boys into black men, and then you wonder why people are stumped. If you don't offer opportunities to people that are available in the trade schools, I mean, I bring that up all the time. The trade schools are gone. We have to create them. We have to train our people because all of these young minds are so talented. They can do so much. But if they don't have support and no income coming in, I mean, you, you're desperate. We all have been there before, not had money. What are we going to do? Yeah. Go ahead, so I have to ask the question, as a society, are we stupid or something? We've got a ready and willing workforce right there trying to earn a living right there. And they have to resort to crime and we're calling it a crime wave. No, we can make the change out here. We need to put our young folk to work. We need to put everybody to work. It is time for us to stop just being consumers and Take what the market throws on us and throws on us and throws on us without income. So they want you to spend on all these products that they put in your face every single day without income, without jobs. So we're asking you to support WPFW so that we can illuminate these issues because commercial media is not going to do it. They just want you to be blind consumers. And another thing, when you're speaking about consumerism... We need a boycott. We need to seriously, I've been thinking about it since the Montgomery bus boycott, 1954. Not getting on the bus broke down the system. We have the power. It's not going to take all of us, and it's not going to take 365 days. We just need to make a decision that we're going to boycott this until we get this. We got to focus on putting our money where our mouth is. You know, uh, the last hour we talked to uh, Melissa Wasser of the ACLU and Ron Hampton, an uh, ex-metropolitan police officer who had been on the force 24 years, and I met him back in the 70s. Uh, when I met him, I had retired from my past life activities. So Ron and I got to be friends. And I'm telling you, we, we, this was part two of a, a topic we did last week with Ron Hampton and Melissa Wasser. Folk, this crime bill is coming down. The city council members are doing something because there's so much violence and the, and the media is reporting all these carjackings, murders, killings, retail thefts, etc., all over the city, all over the country. So they got to say that we got to do something. But what you're doing is not the complete pack package. If I'm sick and I go to the hospital I, and the doctor want to find out how did I catch this cold? Was I outside in the rain? They try to investigate the causations. 
there's nothing in this crime, all of this crime bill to deal with the causation, the origination or the actual action, uh, action of these young men and women. You got young boys and women who are committing crime because they don't care about nobody. They're hopeless. As Jerry said earlier, folks, the answer to this is jobs. It'll reduce it. It ain't going to solve it. But if you got some money, like we said at the beginning of the last show, Mayor Murray is my friend. I love him and still love him to death. When he came up with the Summer Youth Job Program, that's beautiful. That was the innovation. Kids had jobs for two months, or, or, or six, or eight, six, eight weeks in the summer. They got a check every two weeks. Then it's in. So what about the other 10 months? Don't they need money to live on the other 10 months? These kids need money. They need jobs. We got it. Returning citizens coming out. In California, they started a program, and they gave $2,400 to men and women being released from prison. If they follow certain things, they report to the parole officer, they did the year analysis, et cetera, then you're eligible to receive $2,400. We got men doing 40, 50 years in prison, and they come out with $10. They gave one guy a $100 bill, and he hadn't seen money in 45 years. He hadn't touched a dollar bill. He go in the store with a grand, brand new $100 bill, and the clerk told him, we don't take cash. He was devastated. He didn't know what to do. He got a hundred dollar bill. He had had money in his hand in 45 years and he get a fresh crisp hundred dollar bill. He going in the store to buy him up some stuff. And he said, it don't take cash. And he said, what do you take? He don't know. He didn't know anything about debit cards or cash cards or Zelle or pay cash back or whatever. And, uh, these kind of problems are contributing to And as, as I said before, we, we call a new phrase prison side. There's homicide, there's suicide, there's fratricide, and there's another side. But there's a new side we come up with called prison side. Men and women are committing crimes and going back to prison because they can't adjust, because they don't have the support ne uh, mechanisms to allow them to stay in the street. And it hurts to see that the city government, D.C., spent over $30 million in relocating migrants in Washington, D.C., the mayor of New York City, they just come up with a program giving out $1,000 gift cards, debit cards to the migrants, $1,000. A month, a, a, every a month. month. Really? And I bet a lot of these sisters and brothers who are on, um, what is it called, welfare still, yeah. they're not getting that Public assistance. a month. Yeah. Right, so come on now. Again, Roach, on a previous show, you mentioned, I think it was $7 million was spent in D.C. on Wiffle ball courts. Oh yeah, yeah pickleball, pickleball, pickleball. Is that? Yeah, how, that's inconceivable. You know, I I did some work at one of the elementary schools in Washington D.C. that had to close down because they didn't have a working air conditioning system. The kids couldn't even go to school, and we're going to spend seven million dollars on pickleball courts. It's criminal. Very you know, simple. This kind of thing, this is a, this is the same jiggy boogie that we're going through with this uh, omnibus crime bill. And see, there's a, a several pickleball courts, but there's also uh, men and women who don't have nothing to eat, no place to sleep, nothing to sleep, nowhere to go. And we're rushing to help the migrants. I ain't got no problem to helping anybody that need help. You help them, but you help those at home first. You help your people. Why are we spending 40 to 50 billion to Ukraine, another 50 billion to Israel, and that one dime 
has been spent on the opioid situation in Washington, D.C. We got young kids and folks who are dying from overdoses. We got the carjacking. We got the retail thefts. You got black suicide on the increase, teenage pregnancy. We got a truancy rate in our schools of 60%. Six out of 10 kids are not going to school out of fear of somebody hurting them or they can't get out of the house, they can't cross the street or whatever. Folks, crisis ain't the word that we need to use. This is urgent help that's needed across the board. If you want to make the streets safe, a law ain't going to make them safe. We got to reach the people who are committing the acts and, and re- eliminate the causes, the reasons why they're doing this. I got guys that come to us every week. My wife and I ask for 20, 30, 40, 50. I don't have it, but it don't make no difference. Whatever I got, they got it. Because that 20, 50, $100 may mean the difference of saving somebody's life or keeping somebody from getting busted in the head. All we're talking about is people want to be treated the way you treated. They want to be able to live and take care of the bills. And we can't do that. And so much of our uh, listening audience are owners and you work for corporations. You can hire uh, many of these returnees. Hire a returnee. I mean, get past that uh, label and look at people in the eye. Talk to them one-on-one and open your doors to hire some returnees. These guys are bright and smart. They've been spending a lot of time studying. You know, people... There's two ways to deal with this problem. We can pay at the front end where it's be cheaper, or we can wait till it's later when somebody kills three, four people, like the young lady that took the police car and ran over two, three, four, five people, and then got out and stabbed them after she ran them over. And the lady was having a mental health breakdown. And we got folk like this who are just breaking down. They can't handle this. There was a guy in D.C. from uh, Dayton, Ohio, back in the 70s, when Robert Hooks opened up the D.C. Black Repertoire Theater on George Avenue. It was a group called Theater West, and uh, the director was a young man named Clarence Thomas, and he did a one-man play, Clarence Young. I'm sorry, not Thomas. Please forgive me, y'all. I did not mean that. His name was Clarence Young, and he did a play. <laughs> he came on the stage in a big box, and he showed the effects of the system had on him, and everybody can't deal with the system. Some of the some of us get devastated. We're being destroyed, and everybody can't make it. You don't know how much you can take until it's laid on your back, and then if it's too much, it's just too much. So we have to find ways to get this off. And people, you got guys in this city like Al Malik Farrakhan with ceasefire, don't smoke the brothers, Tyrone Parker. There's folks that are like uh, One Flag with Juju and them, uh, Brother Tate over in Southeast, them dealing with crews. You got organizations all over this city that's coming together to see what they can do, man, to bring this about. And they're doing this to risk their lives. And, and the irony of it is, these guys don't even have car fare to come to the meetings. They don't have car fare to go in the neighborhoods to stop the killings. We've been trying to get resources, and I'm tired of it. It ain't that I don't dislike the mayor. I don't dislike none of the city councilmen. I love my mother and father, but I disagree with them. You got the right to disagree with anybody. Disagreement don't mean you don't like them. I just see it from a different perspective. And we want that perspective to be shared with everybody else. Because we've been doing this for 50-some years, people. And we ain't telling you something I read in the book. I didn't get an award for it, no certificate. I got time, punishment, solitary, insane asylum. I was paralyzed, exception, all this kind of I paid my dues for where I'm at now. And folks, we don't want nobody else to go through that kind of hell. I think Jerry's trying to chime in. We're still waiting on our guest, Dr. William Lawson, 
who was in traffic. So we're holding down the fort until he come in. If not, I got two beautiful guests. I got my beautiful wife, and I got this ugly guy. I mean, call him beautiful. <laughs> I got chirping. But I just to say one more thing. <laughs> what we need, there are people listening who you know you can you can send 10 grand, 5 grand, 20 grand to these organizations that are doing the work. Put your money where your mouth is. You, you got that money sitting there. Help us out. We need it. That'll make you safe. Put the money in the places where to work. You got men and women who are risking their lives every day going in these communities. And they're doing the work. And they don't get paid not one penny. So, folk, the phone number to call if you want to participate in this discussion with Jerry and, and Mertine and I is 202-588-0893. That's 202-588-0893. And you'll be able to talk to Mertine or Jerry Parrish. And we got another uh, young fella named Mo Thomas. You can talk to Mo, and they got a youngster with him. And I asked that youngster, what are you doing hanging with them old geezers? You know what I mean? Yeah. And these geezers keep us on the air every Tuesday. You're looking at the next generation. That, that's <laughs> Shep. That's the next generation that's of WPFW. We're making that investment into the future. We're asking you to also make an investment in the future. Like Roach said, it goes a long way. You can pay now or you can pay later. And when you end up paying later, you may pay it with your life. We've got to make change. And we're asking you to help WPFW make change in the world by giving us a little support. No amount is too small. Again, the local number. 202-588-9739. The toll-free number, if you're out of area, 800-222-9739. I'm going to give you the website, wpfwfm.org. Donate now button right there. Hit that to pledge quickly and securely. I think we still have Cash App up and running. On Cash App, type in dollar sign WPFW. Make change happen. Go active in your community now. We are on Crossroads, where Roach usually talks about what's going on on the inside, inside of the prison industrial complex. But we're being relevant to you right now and discussing what's happening on the outside with public safety. So help us address the issues of public safety without being reactionary. We need innovation. We need humanization. One of the little things that we've done, WPFW, Roach, and as you mentioned, um, Malik, every year we've done the Upshur Street Recreation Center barbecue. Small cookout, thing cookout. is a cookout. It is an innovation because we had hundreds of people every year come to this event. The place would be packed without incident over the years without incident and then we clean it all up over 15 years 15 years and afterwards we clean it all up it's humanization families are there community is there people are getting to know each other so help us out please you know like i said we need the money to stay on the ad but if you want to do something because i we've been going to senior citizens meetings i've been going to church meetings community meetings and everybody's saying they're afraid they're scared to come out their house they're scared to come out at nighttime. Uh, they're scared to walk their dog. And if you want to do something to make this state, uh, city safe, people, when you see some young people, talk to them. Ask them a question. Say, hey, how you doing? What can I do to help you? Humanize. These kids need to be reached out to. We've been talking about uh, a thing that we call the elephant syndrome. And we push the elephant <laughs> syndrome. And we can learn a lot from, from animals. In Africa, in India, they're talking about the elephants running amok. 
destroying villages, uh, destroying cars, stepping on people, doing all kinds of foolishness. So they went out in the forest and they brought in five male bull elephants. And the reason why these young elephants was destroying everything, the hunters had killed their parents and taken their tusk. So they had no parental guidance for these baby elephants, these orphan elephants. So they went and got the uh, five bull elephants and brought them back. And after a while with the uh, interaction with these young uh, young elephants, they stopped being crazy. They stopped running the muck. They got right in line and follow. We can learn a lot from animals. We've been speaking that uh, elephant syndrome. We got men and women that did 30, 40, 50 years in prison who've been working as mentors inside the institution. They can reach these folk. We saying we got a cavalry, but they don't have the horses or the resources. We got men and women. If you want to make your street safe, Work with them nonprofit groups who got men who got boots on the ground who are going into communities. They're violence interrupters. They're peace negotiators. They squash beefs. And they go in these communities and they get the work done. They don't have a degree. They don't have a, a GED. That ain't the thing. They in the street doing something to try to make these people free, safe, and, and, and comfortable. People, we need your help. We ain't coming to you. I don't want nothing from you. You can't give me nothing. I don't, I'm not asking for that. I won't take nothing. What we're asking is we'll take advice. We take your assistance and support to help these men and women. People, these are our kids. We can save them. We can reach them. I'm afraid to come out of the house sometime. I go get gas. I got to I look all around. I ain't never had to look around at the, at the bushes and the trash cans and see who's hiding behind the dumpsters. Is somebody coming in to take my car? And even if they take it, I can't fight no more. I'm an old geezer. I can't fight. I can't even run. I need help too, people. So help us to help us. To help yeah. you, help us to help us to help you. And believe me, we got some soldiers on the ground right now on Minnesota Avenue and Eli Place on Mondays and Fridays. We have one flag, the Alliance of Concerned Men, the men, men from Cruz from the Nation of Islam. Do we have the credible messengers still? Yeah, we have the credible messengers. And all these guys are working over there doing what they can to make the community safe. People, we need help. We can make this the, the city safe for all of us, but we got. They bring all hands on deck. And the key player to bringing this stuff together is the folk from Ben's Chili Bowl. The Ben's Chili Bowl family has been actively involved in coordinating, mobilizing some of these community organizations to make sure that we get the right resources in place to stop some of this. This is our city. These are our kids. And uh, this is the bottom of the ninth inning for me. And I'm in the two-minute drill uh, based on my age. So people, I don't have time to waste. So if you're going to do something, do it. Make a donation to WPFW, to Crossroads, to keep us on the air. Uh, and we'll be coming to you regularly. So we're going to throw it to Jerry. So Roach mentioned that we're at Ben's Chili Bowl. And part of the reason of, of us being here is to honor Ben's Chili Bowl for being active in the community over decades. 60 the, years. The other thing is because WPFW is not in any gilded ivory tower. We get out into the community because we are part of the community. Most people out here know our faces. They Many people know our voices because we are directly connected to you, not by way of an ad agency, commercials, or anything like that. You know Roach. Many of you know me. A lot of people know all of the people at WPFW. We are you. We are Part of this community. We're just asking you to go active. Help WPFW, help your community. We can make this a better world. We don't have to live in fear. Innovation. Make 
change happen. Create a better world. Go after it. You know, during the last aisle, the first aisle, we talked about doing grapevine. We read a couple of stories. And one of them I'd like to read again. The food on your table brought to you by prison labor. Incarcerated workers help produce some of America's most popular food brands, but get few of the benefits and protections afforded to others. If you shop at Walmart, Target, Costco, Whole, Whole Foods, or many other large grocery chains recently, there's a chance you purchase food produced by prison labor, according to a year-long study investigation by the Associated Press. Beef, soybeans, corn, and wheat are just some of the products that have found their way in that have found their way into consumer markets from prison farms and bonds. While the 1935 law makes it illegal to transport goods made by convict labor across state lines, an exemption exists for agricultural commodities that today amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars of commerce, according to the Associated Press. So is your food being grown, picked, harvested by inmate labor? We've been talking about the prison industrial complex. This is another aspect of it, Jerry, in terms of Food, commissary, locking up people to medical costs. This is a multi, multi billion dollar year industry. So we want to make sure that folks are aware of it. Our guest has finally got it. He's been tied up in traffic. His name is Dr. William Lawson. He's going to join us shortly. Uh, good morning, Dr. Lawson. Glad you could make it, sir. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lawson is the founder of the Institute for Reducing Disparities, president of senior psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry and behavior science at the George Washington University. Uh, he's a former chair of psychiatry and behavior science at Howard University School of Medicine. He received a PhD in psychology from the University of New Hampshire. And Dr. Lawson's resume goes on and on and on. We're glad you're able to make it. Sorry, the traffic is such that kept you from being a little delayed. But good morning, Dr. Wim B. Lawson. How you doing, sir? Thank you, sir. How you doing? Great. Okay, pull the mic right in front of you, would you? Yes, sir. We want to talk about your book, Dr. You get the book, and the title of your book is, I'd like for you to say it, sir. Hello, go ahead. Go ahead. The title of your book, Dr. Lawson? I just write myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm longer than I wanted to be. Uh, it's peeling back the layers, uh, addressing uh, African-American health. Okay. It was black health and black, uh, what was it, black health and black medicine? Yeah, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, because uh, Dr. Chapman suggested we call you. He, he's a good friend of ours. been on the show at a regular time. Right. And we just did another uh, show, a uh, one-hour show previously before you came in, and we were talking about the new omnibus crime bill, and you in the field of psychiatry, and I'm. We've been waiting to get you in because we know that uh, we have some questions you want to ask in terms of those men. Uh, let me back up. A good friend of ours who passed away a few years ago was Dr. Francis Cresswell. Welsing, exactly. Do you know her? Very well. We cross-referred patients. Okay. Um, and um and. She uh, tended to call me up in terms of questions of psychopharmacology, and I call up in terms of issues about some of the kinds whether or not patients were experiencing delusions or whether or not they were facing reality. 
You know, I met Dr. Uh, Welsing in his 60s, and I was a transfer from Lawton to St. Elizabeth's Hospital at John Howell Pavilion for the criminal insane. And she was the only black psychiatrist on the whole staff of the entire hospital. They had eight, over 8,000 patients. And she was the only black uh, psychiatrist. And because of her, they didn't give me the electric chair. The judge or the prosecutors were requesting electric chair for three of us. And she did a, a, a psychological evaluation. And would you believe, Dr. Lawson, that the, uh, the prosecutor asked Dr. Welsing at trial, what's the normal time when you interview somebody coming over for a mental examination? You say about 45 minutes, half out of 45 minutes. And uh, they asked her, how, many, how long were you in the room with Roach Brown? She said, I was in there with Roach about three, four hours. Mm -hmm. She said, just you and Roach in that little room in the medical condition? Say, and you normally spend a half hour, 45 minutes. What was going on with y'all? This is the this is the prosecutor yes. throwing some juggie boogie into the game. Right. Exactly. And she got up on that stand, man. I never seen a black woman so strong, powerful, undeterred, not afraid, and spoke her mind. And because of what she said, they did not give me the electric chair. Yeah. And she helped save my life, man. So for the last 50 years, Dr. Frances Welsing has been risking her life and reputation to get us out of this, out of the clutches of uh, the criminal justice system, because she know the deck was stacked. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Chapman also indicated that the criminal justice system in the United States has been especially um, detrimental to black people. Um, when you look at the number of people who are incarcerated, you sign that the rates went sky high after the so-called war on drugs. Mm -hmm. But even before that, we're much more likely to be in, not only incarcerated, but also face problems like uh, capital punishment. And even before that, um, you recognize the value of St. Elizabeth's because before St. Elizabeth's, black folks who were mentally ill went to jail. Yeah. There was no other alternative. Okay. Say that again. Before St. Elizabeth, the black people went to jail if you're mentally ill. Right. Well, all you had was Petersburg. It was um, Central State in Petersburg was the only mental hospital for black people um, in, in the country. So the, uh, St. Elizabeth was actually an innovation. It opened up soon after um, Central State in Petersburg. And was now... My uh, colleague King Davis is now going back, looking at those records, seeing that at a time when we were told that black people did not get mentally ill, that everything they did was out of impulse or violence or whatever, uh, these folks were not getting treated and were often were deprived of treatment and faced um, incarceration rather than treatment. And unfortunately, that is very much a problem now. And that is that when we think about problems like crime in the community, when we think about drug abuse, the first one we think about, first thing we think about is criminal justice involvement. When a lot of those folks are really suffering from mental problems or from uh, worries, distress, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and trying to treat it the best way they can. Let me ask you this. Uh, I read a report where it says uh, three out of five prisoners incarcerated in American prison system are suffering from some form of mental disease or mental illness or mental abnormalities. Uh, and we know that, 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 that a lot of people going into prison and three out of five 
have mental problems. The question I want to ask you is, if somebody, is sex a natural motion? Yes, yes or no? Is sex a natural motion? Well, it's necessary for survival. So, but if you lock a man or woman up for 30, 40 years without sex, what impact would that have on their psyche? Quite a bit, actually, because um, they have to develop pretty much um, pathological ways of trying to deal with those normal impulses. And also, um, it really disrupts their ability in terms of seeing the world and making decisions in terms of how they interact with others when they release. Part of the problem with the criminal justice system for these long sentences is they are not rehabilitation. They're really unlearning or not learning useful behaviors that can help them to manage in society. You know, there's a, uh, there was a situation where there was men. Now, when I was over St. Elizabeth's, and they put me down there for three years, and I had two shark treatments. Yes. And they gave me that, not for treatment, but because of punishment. Mm-hmm. I disobeyed, and they took another sandwich off the line, and I shouldn't have. So they took me upstairs and gave me a shark treatment. And they were using shock treatment. I had two shock treatments for disciplinary reasons, not for medical treatment. And it just upset me, took me to a whole different thing. And this kind of thing is back in. And then in 65, they just stopped uh, lobotomies. Mm-hmm. And I met a couple of guys who got lobotomies. And the, and the guys at the crazy house told me, said, you better stop, Roach. If you don't stop, they're going to take you to the fifth floor and give you one of them lobotomies. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a dance. I didn't know what it was a damn lobotomy. I said, how, how can you do the lobotomy? I'm, I'm cracking a joke. But the guys told me, said, you better stop. So they used to use lobotomies over there and shock treatment. Mm-hmm. Are they still using shock therapy now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then just say that um, shock treatment done, first of all, Using this punishment makes absolutely no sense because supposedly if it works, you're unconscious. So you shouldn't experience it, uh, much of an experience at all. Uh, secondly, uh, the kind of ways in which it is useful is uh, problems with which all other avenues have failed. Um, since, and we now have techniques that can actually do the same thing that is produce increased activity in key parts of the brain without actually having to create a seizure. What activity is that? What, 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 what kind of treatment is that? What we found out is that a lot of people, who, not just every day walking around experiencing depression or sadness in terms of um, life experiences, but some people, for whatever reason, we're just beginning to understand there seem to be less activity in certain parts of the brain in turn that allows us to appreciate the effects of certain kinds of neurotransmitters, chemicals in the brain that is associated with emotion, with sadness, feelings, health, um, you know, ones like serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Um, these are essential chemicals, and if they're too low or too high, your emotions can get out of control. And if they're too low, um, they can lead to severe, almost intractable depression. And medication, talk therapy, all of these can help improve these. But on the other hand, if you do not uh, do it properly, or if you uh, are, if they're resistant to treating, then you can have to turn to things. Used to be shock treatment. Now we got uh, uh, t- we can create med. Uh, transmagnetic stimulation um, uh, waves around the brain and other ways that we're finding that can produce the same results. So the good news is that uh, brain chemistry can be changed by talk, uh, 
staying on a healthy diet, uh, and sometimes medication. It does not work very well when you use some of the street drugs. Street drugs can produce a little temporary feelings of feeling good, but they don't really get at the core of the depression the problem, yeah. or the anxiety. And what we find is that once those drugs wear off, folks go out in the worst shape they were when they were using them. Let me ask you this. As a psychiatrist, and you study the brain and all its related activities, there's been cases in the paper of young kids, 12, 13, 14, committing serious crimes and being taken to trial as adults. And you know that the brain doesn't develop all the way in somebody 12, 13, or 14. What's your observation in terms of those men, those young kids being t- tried as adults whose brains are not fully developed? What's your what's your position on that? First of all, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, secondly, uh, what we now know is that the brain actually does not just stop there. The human brain continues to develop, even in terms of late teenage, in terms of the, of the 20s. And, and as a result, there's always a capacity to learn and to, if you can call it, one to say, if you have the right interventions, rehab people. Uh, so the idea of simply removing people out of society, locking them up and what have you, um, is not a very useful way to help someone with the developing brain to be able to uh, live a useful life later. Okay. We got one call on the line. We have uh, one call on the line, please. A uh, question or comments. You're on the air. This is Rick calling you long. This is from Germany, man. Hey, come on, Rick. We hear you. Come on. Uh, I just want to say to the doctor, to the good doctor, um, I was an outpatient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in the middle 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And um, my family volunteered for family therapy before they shut down that hospital towards the black community there in D.C., I'm calling you from Germany, and I have a psychiatrist here. But uh, my, my comment is, if, if America avoids civil war, it doesn't matter who you install as president, they're going to keep the prison system going to lock up not only the teenagers, but the adult men as vagrant and as criminal, because... They need the labor, free labor. So what, go ahead, Doc. Want- well, there are a lot of folks that are saying that that's the case. Um, what some states are discovering is that it's not a, it's not a very cost-effective way to run a society. It's ex- very, very expensive to keep somebody in the criminal justice system. It deprives them of education and useful um, skills. And unless you want to keep them there indefinitely, at some point, they're going to have to come out. And you don't want them to come out and not have useful skills. You don't want them to come out and say, you know, I got to turn back into crime again in order to live and to survive. So in the U.S., it's interesting. I'm glad you get a chance to expose to the European system. The European system, uh, a long time has uh, tried to do more, not all the time, but try to do more in terms of rehabilitation, not just the prison system, but also the mental hospitals. And actually, uh, even for severe mental illness in mental hospitals, they make sure that people get, uh, even people with severe mental illness, get some form of psychotherapy or behavioral interventions. And what we find is that when you do that, 
people have better outcomes, don't require having to stay locked up for long periods of time, and they are much more likely to what we call recover in some cases, or at least to be able to function in society. Let me ask, okay, but did I answer your question, Rick? Louise gone. All righty. Doc, question. Uh, we got another call. Come on. Question or comment, please. Yes, I have a question for the doctor. What What is his theory about what seems to be an increase in mental illness of young black men between the ages of 20 up into their mid-30s, of which my son is is experiencing severe mental illness right now. I look at that data with some suspicion. Part of it is because when I was in school, I was taught that black folks didn't get mentally ill unless they got schizophrenia or something like that. They didn't get depressed. And that kind of belief that we are somehow immune to mental illness is found out now in the white community, even in the black community. Um, we call it other things, but it is mental illness. We used to believe that black people didn't commit suicide. But if you go back in time, you see that we sure jumped off the slave ships when they came to this country. Um, so we have long history of suicide and other problems. They, so the data shows that we're now recognizing suicide as well as other mental disorders more often. Part of it has to do, I think, with the uh, COVID experience because it exposed the lack of available resources that exist in our community when these problems exist. And I think that's a contributing factor in terms of why people are turning to street drugs and other techniques. They try their home, their own homemade remedies to try to deal with these problems. Unfortunately, these techniques in the long run don't work very well at all. And that's one of the points that I've uh, made in my book and in other places, that we need to do more to, reckon, to try to address these problems with effective therapy and treatments um, for our people uh, in whatever circumstances they are. I've worked trying to do something with the correctional system. Um, every chance I get, I uh, to, uh, try to expand services uh, in various uh, correctional places. And many How well of did they receive today. you for doing that? So, um, many times quite well. Uh, sometimes it was a little bit of a change. When I was um, they, when I was in, in Arkansas, they used to treat suicidal um, inmates, which is, by the way, suicide rates are very high in our correctional systems. They used to chain them to the wall. Uh, so we took it to court and um, got them so they stopped chaining them to the wall. Mm. Now, whether or not they're getting effective treatment is another story we're still trying to work on. Boy, we take a call Jerry Parrish in and do a pitch. This is where so uh, winner's fun drive. Go ahead, Jerry. Yes, well, Roach, can I address a question to Roach? Huh? Can I address a question to you, Roach? Yes, you can. Come on in, young lady. Yes. Yes. Um, do you have um, experience being incarcerated for many years? Do you think that there is benefits and redemptive suffering for those who experience many years of incarceration. Was that what? Give me the last part of your question. Redemption. Do, do you think that, yeah, that there's redemptive suffering in people who are incarcerated for many years? You mean years for, for themselves? They, they, they've been redemptive or the institution is making them redemptive? No, they, they, they have a, a experienced self-redemptive 
Um, well, that, de- that depends on the individual. Some guys wake up sooner than others. Some don't. Uh, you know, some guys can put up with a lot of this stuff and some of them can't. So it depends on the individual, his own makeup, uh, anything. One of the things I wanted to throw in right now to part of your question is for those men and women who do 30, 40, 50 years, dog, will come out of prison. Uh, and they live in an abnormal, hostile, mean, violent community. Do they have mental illnesses when they release that for 40, 50 years in prison? Yeah, some people, they are just resilient. You know, you put them in jail forever and they come out um, being able to be productive and useful and can be redeemed. But there are some other people who suffer from problems. And even some of the folks who do well often come out with problems like post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, what we call combat um uh, uh, combat illness when we used to see it in soldiers, the same kinds of things and they had the same kinds of flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, difficulty relating to people and not having developed, especially now since we live in a much more uh, complex society, now you need to have a lot of these skills to be able to function effectively in this society and to be productive and survive. Should men and women coming out of prison after decades in prison get our servicemen get PTSD uh, benefits and assistance because they go over overseas and they live for eight months, 18 or whatever. And they realize that they got psychological problems they got to deal with. That's for 15, 18 months or two years. What about those men and women did 30, 40, 50 years in prison? Don't they have psychological? We came up with something, Doc. Right. I don't know if you, you know, I don't think you heard of this. It's called PISS, P-I-S-S. Post incarcerated stress syndrome, like the PDA, PTSD syndrome. Yes. This is for men and women coming out of an institution. Post incarcerated stress syndrome. Do you think that's a reality? I think that's very much a reality. It's something we're, we're, we're looking at. And we also got to remember that also in our community, folks who've never been in the correctional system, but who've been exposed to institutional racism and other factors. Yeah. You mentioned that Welsing yeah. and that. Um, Pat Newton recognized this. We're finding that at Howard University in our primary care clinic, we found over half the people had depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And were often was not recognized. Only about 17% of them got treatment. We tr- wrote that up. Some of the people didn't believe our findings. They replicated it in um, Atlanta, in Boston, and in other places uh, in African-American inner city areas. So... Yes, I'm not surprised at what you're finding at all. I think it's a, if you think it's a way to get the resources directed towards care uh, rather than punishment, then by all means, push it. Should everybody being released after decades in prison receive therapy or, or psychological or mental counseling because of, of the environment they came out of? of I don't think everybody needs um, psychotherapy, but I think everybody needs the kind of rehabilitation to be able to adjust. Uh, just saw, I saw an article there about a famous article, famous artist who was in the correctional system for a long time who went out and became a successful artist um, because he had the experience, opportunity to work with other artists and to get that experience. And I had uh, patients who started their own businesses um, who've come out of the correctional system, not because of what they learned in prison, uh, um, but because they had those skills that were almost but but they were able to get the t- training afterwards. Okay, well, Doctor, are, are you familiar with Doctor Harrell at Howard University? Yes, I'm familiar with Doctor Harrell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a quote from him um, when I was a student of his, and he says, 
the question isn't why some of us, uh, having been marginalized in this society, become insane. The question is why all of us aren't completely insane because of what we've been through. And with that, I'll hang up and thank you for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, excellent point. I don't want to disagree when I have... I wouldn't call it all insane, but I would say that many of us develop uh, non-functional ways of dealing with this society because of the kinds of road that many of us are forced into. Roach. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Gerald. I asked you this question earlier. Um, is there really any rehabilitation that's happening on the inside? Maybe we need to look at rehabilitation on the outside because it's clearly... Not working on the you know, the word rehabilitation, according to Webster, means to restore one's right. to its original form or capacity. Um, so if I was a bank robber when I went in, I'm a bank robber when I come out. <laughs> well, you don't want to rehabilitate. I don't want that kind of rehabilitation. You know, that's how it is. And it's up to the individual person. When you had enough, you hurt enough, you suffered enough, you realize what you done lost, you make that individual choice inside. There's nothing the institution does to make you be uh, to rehabilitation. They, you're there for punishment. And that's all it is. I don't care what they call it, how they word it or, or justify it. You go to prison for punishment, not for rehabilitation. That's an excellent point. I might add, uh, when you have folks going in there 15, 16, 17, as you mentioned, brains haven't been developed yet. What are you going, what are you going back to? It was never there in the first place. Yeah. And that's why the important role we have is to help get what they're, there are some folks um, who um working with youth and also with young adults to try to give them that which they didn't get early in their life um, so that they'll be able to uh, work effectively and function in society and in our communities. So it could be as simple as taking the re off of the word and habilitate people. There's no re. <laughs> Maybe they just need to be habilitated. That's what it need to be habilitated. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1999, the Supreme Court ruled in Olmstead versus the Supreme Court that failing to care for people with mental illnesses in the least restrictive environment violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Seamen in the concept that people with mental illnesses should, whenever possible, receive care in the community rather than in the uh, institution. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, I think the issue is care. Unfortunately, if you listen to the news, when somebody kills somebody or somebody involved in behavior, folks come up and say it's a broken mental health system. It's not the broken mental health system. It's the fact that we're trying to deal with these problems punitively and not effectively in useful ways. And when we look in terms of what's happening in the community, we often find that folks are, I mean, I was, I'm old enough to remember when we had the deinstitutionalization movement, get the people out the hospitals. It'll do a lot better if we close down the hospitals. Well, what happened is the resources that may have saved from getting people out of the hospital didn't go into care. Yes. It went elsewhere. Well, went put um, putting more money into the correctional system. So, so I think that's a wonderful idea, but we've got to make sure that the services get to the people. I think it's very clear in terms of D.C., uh, especially example, D.C. spend more money per capita in terms of care for um, youth and others um, than most other communities. But what we find is that many people even aren't aware of these uh, services. They're in, the wrong, uh, they, they, they're in the wrong part of town or uh, the providers are just not where they are. 
And that's the issue that needs to be addressed with. And some of the providers simply aren't culturally competent to deal with many of our folks. You want to make your pitch, Jerry? Well, it is that time where we ask you to get involved in this broadcast right now. It's not possible without your support. We're not able to address these issues without your support because we have no commercials, we have no sponsors, no universities, no government. Just us. You heard it in the song. It's just us. So we ask you to call the station at 202-588-9739. We have operators standing by right now waiting for your call and your pledge of support. Make this happen. Step up to a system that is basically destroying us. WPFW is here for you. Be here for us for a moment, please. No amount is too small. Go ahead. You know, one of the things I experienced when I was in this crazy house over St. Elizabeth's, that the minute I walked in and they gave me a cup of thoughts in, I didn't see the doctor. I didn't see nobody but the nurse. And she said, get in line. And while I got in line to go into the nurse's station, all the crazy guys who was doing all their thing, they walking by and they telling me, don't take the juice. Don't take the juice. So when she got finished, you don't have to take it. I said, I ain't going to take it. I know what y'all put in this juice. I ain't taking it. So I walked out to the nurse's office. And I sat down looking at TV. In about 20 minutes, I look up and some big guy come out and said, Brown? Three great big giants. Look like they play for the Redskins. They come out and said, where you at? They grabbed me, body slammed me without pulling my trousers down and hit me in the butt with a needle. And they came back four hours later. Then they came back for the second. I said, wait a minute. I take the juice because <laughs> yes. that medicine had me messed up. So they give you Thorazine, Melaryl, Triloform, Chlorhydrate, uh, Stelazine. These are some of the drugs I was on when I was in uh, confined in there. And I couldn't remember my name. I didn't know where I was going. I couldn't even know if I ate. And they giving me medicine. And I still ain't talked to a doctor. They giving me medication from the staff who is not medically trained to dispense or prescribe these medicines. And the nursing aide gave me these medicines. And anytime I raised my voice, I got an increase in my dosage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing, are they still using these psychotropic drugs? Thorazine, yeah. Melaryl? Yeah, I have, um, I've seen both sides of it. On one hand, uh, when Thorazine came along, I had a great uncle who had spent most of his life in psychiatric hospitals. And uh, when he got it, he was able to come out and function. On the other hand, I spend a lot of time taking patients off medication because they either don't need it or they're getting the, more, the wrong ones. And one of the points that they don't talk about too much and that I've been pushing is that when they develop these medications, they don't include folks from our community in terms of the clinical trials that they use. As a result, the doses are wrong, uh, the, the timing is wrong, and the type of medicine is wrong. So when these medicines are used inappropriately, you come up with all kinds of side effects. And then you said, lousy experiences. They say, why don't half the people who take them don't want to take them anymore? Because it does not, it, they don't see it as beneficial to them. Folks that see it as beneficial uh, tend to stay on. But okay. those, but those yeah. then it's a different story. Okay. Our time is up. I'm going to get you next time. Our time is up. Uh, I want to say thank you to Dr. William Lawson. He's a psychiatrist. And this is Black History Month. He did a, got a book called Black Healing and Black Health. And we've been talking about uh, the impact of psychiatry, suicide, and the mental illnesses in the black community. And as, as usual, Doc, everything affecting Dr. Brown 
is uh, off the chart. So thank you for coming in, Dr. William Lawson. We appreciate you. We'll have you back again. The name of his book is Black he- Black Healing and Black Health. So thank you for tuning in. That's your uh, book. Uh, to, to Crossroads. Yeah. We coming to you live from Ben's Chili Bowl. When you right. come down, get a half smoke with Chili Dog and say Roach and Mertine send you. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York. I'm Sue Goodwin. A federal appeals court today rejected former President Donald Trump's claim that he was immune to charges of plotting to subvert the results of the 2020 election, ruling that he must go to trial on a criminal indictment accusing him of seeking to overturn his loss to President Biden. The unanimous ruling by a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia is unlikely to be the final word in the case, given that Trump is expected to continue his appeal to the Supreme Court. Trump argued in part that criminal liability for former presidents would have a chilling effect on presidential action if leaders face the threat of risk from what he called meritless and harassing prosecution. But the appeals court found that risk appears to be low, adding that, quote, instead of inhibiting the president's lawful discretionary action, the prospect of federal criminal liability might serve as a structural benefit to deter possible abuses of power and criminal behavior, close quote. A major bipartisan border deal and foreign aid package appears on track to fail in Congress this week amid relentless attacks from former President Donald Trump. Given mounting opposition among some conservative Republicans who don't see the border provisions as strong enough, it's not clear if there will be enough votes tomorrow to open floor debate. On the House side, Republican leaders said in a statement Quote, any consideration of this Senate bill in its current form is a waste of time, close quote. Meanwhile, several progressive lawmakers in the House and Senate have indicated they cannot support the bill's severe border security measures. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said the bill, quote, throws immigrants under the political bus, close quote. In addition to changes to border policy, the $118 billion package includes $60 billion in military assistance for Ukraine and $14 billion in security assistance for Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi today as part of his trip to the Middle East to promote the framework of a hostage release and ceasefire deal. He is also set to meet with ministers from Qatar. Yesterday, he met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to discuss regional coordination on ending the war in Gaza, as well as plans for the war-torn strip once the fighting ends. On the ground, Israel's defense minister says Hamas's leadership is, quote, 
on the run, but a spokesperson for the militant group said its fighters were still operating in all areas of the enclave. The latest violence has caused more than 1,200 deaths in Israel and nearly 20,500 deaths in Gaza as of yesterday, according to authorities on both sides. In related news, police took into custody more than 100 people, protesting the Pennsylvania state government's investments in Israel yesterday as they demonstrated on the steps of the Capitol Rotunda in Harrisburg. Organizers said the protest was targeted at the state treasury department's investment in Israel bonds. Pennsylvania Treasurer 